Are you looking for ways to attract and retain private pay clients? Thryzer is a payment platform for therapists built to help clients automatically tap into their out-of-network benefits and save on therapy up front. Check out our special link, join.thryzer.com forward slash modern therapist, and use the code modern therapists to activate $2,500 in free payments with Thryzer. Therapy Notes, the number one trusted EHR among mental health professionals, just keeps getting better and better. With legendary customer support 24 hours a day, seven days a week, they're giving you all the tools you need to succeed, whether you're a solo clinician or a group practice. Try them free for two months using promo code MODERN today. You're listening to the Modern Therapist Survival Guide, where therapists live, breathe, and practice as human beings. To support you as a whole person and a therapist, here are your hosts, Kurt Widhelm and Katie Vernoy. Welcome back to the Modern Therapist Survival Guide. I am Kurt Widhelm with Katie Vernoy, and today we're talking about bad business practices or not great business practices that therapists engage in that might be costing them money. It might make it harder for clients to get in the door the first time. The reasons that therapists might do this is that they're swamped for time, that they're trying to rush through things. And Katie, you know what therapists who have bad business practices do? What? They run out of patience. (laughs) Yes, they do. Yes, they do. And I know we don't quite agree on this, but I do believe that bad business practices are akin to bad clinical practices. I think that they definitely overlap. I don't know that people who engage in bad business practices are bad clinicians, but as we look at the whole person therapist, your business is an extension of you. And I think that that can definitely bring up clinically relevant materials to clients or potential clients that that first impression starts from you not returning a phone call soon enough, then that can definitely get in the way of that therapeutic alliance that we hold so dearly here. The argument that I've heard from a lot of folks is if you're a good clinician and you do really good work, that that isn't impacted necessarily by how you run your business. And I think it's a false distinction. I think that oftentimes how we present and how we take care of our clients is integral in in the clinical work. I think that there's stuff that can come up. And if we don't address it thoughtfully and logically, then there can be problems that show up. But I think, you know, sorting through the distinction isn't the topic for today. I think it's really looking at how this actually does overlap. Because I think you mentioned not returning phone calls. I think that definitely impacts the whole profession. You know, a lot of people don't think that therapists are going to return their calls. They feel like it's hard to get into therapy. And so, you know, they come in with that kind of a, you know, kind of energy and and emotion around even somebody answering the phone or finally calling them back. But even in that first intake call, when you're talking to somebody, if your business practices aren't sound, you can seem like you don't know what you're doing. And that that trust and that safety can be really compromised if you're, you know, fumbling around with a calendar or you're not sure or you don't have, you know, a specific way or a structured way to talk about what therapy is and how they can enter into it. Clients can kind of be like, well, maybe I'll enter therapy or maybe I'll give this person a try, but they may not feel as safe entering the room if you've not kind of in a structured way talk them through what they need and then 
use business systems to get them onboarded really quickly. You know, the intake paperwork, setting the fee, doing all that stuff. If you, if you're really uncomfortable or you're fumbling around with it, that's going to negatively impact your therapeutic relationship. I agree. And always trying to turn these into some sort of positive or constructive way of going about things. What do you recommend from that intake sort of process in order to help people increase their conversions? Calling it a conversion will probably turn off some people. So I will say... Obviously, we're not saying, how do I convert you, first-time phone caller, into a client? <laughs> well, no, I'm saying to the therapist audience who's listening, as they don't necessarily like to think about it as sales conversions. But getting people to, to be your therapy client, I think one of the things that I've found that's really important is using some of your therapy skills, but not doing any therapy. And that's something that I think is pretty obvious, but listening, really understanding the problem and making sure that you've repeated back to them, this is the problem I'm hearing, is that right? And, and checking in is, is actually good sales. So the problem that I'm hearing that you're bringing up is that people aren't listening and reflecting from the initial phone call. Well, I think they actually, I think therapists actually probably do that pretty well. It's the next step, which is saying, and this is how I help. Would you like that? Because oftentimes I think we may assume that they know something about therapy that they don't. We may assume that they don't want to hear what we have to offer. And so we don't go into it and we don't get them to commit on the phone. I think the biggest thing is making sure that if, you know, would you like to hear how I work? That's a question. And then in an invitation to continue the conversation, would you like to set up an appointment? I think oftentimes people will get some some kind of discomfort, I'm not sure. You, and, and I think it's something where you can help them talk through the decision. But getting an actual set appointment before you get off the phone is the, the most effective way to convert or to, to get a new client. And additionally to that is, I think that we should all be more clear about how we work. But I hear a lot of clinicians that will try to guess what the clients want to hear and describe something that's not even close to what they're actually capable of doing or capable of being as part of the work goes on. What I think about when you were saying that is we want to use their language. We want to make sure that we're connecting on what they want. So you may use different language when you're talking to each person, but you have to talk about your own process. You can't make up a process that you're not going to be able to do with with the client. It has to be you. And so I think that part is a really good point. So moving from this phone call, when we ask, would you like an appointment? I have this specific hour available three weeks from now. <laughs> I think if that's true, that's part of the conversation early on. But I think setting up the appointment for me also means going into, and a shameless plug for our platinum sponsor, I go to my simple practice and then I actually create the profile. I tell them I'm creating the profile and I get them set up with an appointment as soon as I can. You know, my schedule is pretty booked as is yours, but yeah. I can interest you in a free hour that I have available last week. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think that that probably is, you know, that's a, that's a tough one when you're busy. But I think if you're taking new clients and you want to take new clients, don't shove them into every spare time. We don't want you to burn out. But definitely, I think, try to have some flexibility without giving your whole calendar away. And it's really being honest about what your calendar is, too. I'm not taking new clients until this date because of a vacation. It doesn't make sense to 
start for a session or two sessions and then have like a two or three week vacation where you're going to be out of the office. It's being realistic about what you have available and being able to help your clients make that informed choice about entering into that relationship or when they want to enter into that relationship. And I think for folks who have wide open schedules, giving too many options can be overwhelming for clients. And so I think being able to narrow it down, either finding out like what time of day, what time of week, and then saying, okay, within that time frame, this is what I have available. If you give too many options, it might spin them out a little bit. Rule of threes generally helps. I have yes. <laughs> these <laughs> these blocks of time available. And within that block that you chose, here's my next drop down menu. It's not really a drop down since we're talking on the phone, but... <laughs> <laughs> but part of this phone call is also about fees. Yes, that... and that is a very clinical issue. And a lot of therapists don't like to talk about money. And that can really set the relationship up on a, a pretty hard note if you don't know how to talk about money. What is your process for setting fees? I'm fortunate at this point in my career that the referral network that I have has either directed somebody to my website where I proudly have my fees listed. So that way people who aren't going to either be able to afford my fees or work within a financial arrangement that's set up with either me or the people who work for me, they're going to then move on to the next referral. So my fees are advertised. Mm -hmm. I also bring up within that initial phone call as far as fee structures goes, and we do have ethical duties to make sure that before clients come into the first session that a fee arrangement and how that fee is calculated should be set. But I hear of clinicians who don't take that step on the phone and then want to charge $200 for a session after they have somebody in the room and then they're bringing up, oh, by the way, my fee is $200 a session and the client's saying, I can afford 60. Yeah, yeah. And I think the difficulty with that is it's, I think it comes out of a discomfort to talk about money. It could be other things. It could be just lack of awareness of this requirement to, to enter into a business agreement before you actually charge somebody anything. But I think it's, it's really hard. And I know that there's been, not in the therapy setting, I think that's been pretty easy for me, but there was some, you know, if I've gone out of, you know, kind of the, the standard consulting that I do and something else comes up, there's been times when I recognized, oh crap, I, <laughs> I didn't actually set a fee on this. And I was like, I don't, is a person wanting to pay? Like it gets really confusing. And so setting the fee needs to be really, you know, very conscious. It needs to be agreed upon. And then also all of the the contracts and that kind of stuff, the consent for treatments, that kind of stuff really needs to be taken care of because you're setting a frame of this is what the structure is, is this is what you can expect. And I think that that goes to safety, that people know this is what I'm going to pay, this is what I'm going to do, this is what I'm going to get charged, this, this is what I'm not going to get charged. Because I think too often, if we're a little bit not touchy feely with it, but if we're if we're too fuzzy and too unclear about it, clients can feel very much like there was a bait and switch or there was something that really wasn't good that happened. And that obviously becomes very, you know, it's fodder for clinical stuff, but it's not good stuff that you need to bring in <laughs> to the clinical relationship. And you bring up bait and switch and one of the ideas that comes up for me is about insurance bait and switch, either saying that you're paneled with a company that you're not or that you're in the process of, but have no set date of when you're actually going to be credentialed within that panel. And advertising that you're there can put people in kind of a lurch as far as, 
well, you said that you were doing this and I made it kind of a deal to search for somebody who had this insurance. Mm-hmm. You got to do something about that. Well, and I think there's other folks who will, with insurance, they'll say, I don't have any more insurance spots. If you're willing to not use your insurance, we'll sign a little form and then I'll charge you my fee. And that also, in my mind, is not necessarily cool unless they really don't want to use their insurance. If I don't have insurance spots left, if I'm not taking new clients, that's one of the first things I say before I move forward because I don't want to be in that situation where I'm pushing people to pay something that they don't feel comfortable paying, especially if they're wanting to use their insurance. Thryzer is a payment platform designed for out-of-network therapy. As a therapist, you would use Thryzer to charge clients for sessions and collect your full rate upfront. From the client's perspective, Thryzer links to their health plan, so insurance claims are automatically submitted for them upon every charge. From there, Thryzer manages the claims end-to-end so that your clients don't have to worry about manually submitting super bills or getting on calls with insurance. The best part? Thryzer allows clients to only pay their co-insurance portion for sessions, while Thryzer covers the rest of your fee and waits for reimbursement on their behalf. They also offer you an instant benefits calculator for free, allowing you to provide upfront transparency to prospective clients on their out-of-network coverage. Therapists only pay a standard 3% credit card processing fee per session with no additional fees. Visit join.thryzer.com forward slash modern therapist to get started and use our promo code modern therapists to receive $2,500 in waived fees for your sessions. So once we get people in, into the office space, into scheduling, even if you're in a shared office situation of, you know, sometimes you might be renting out a room that several other therapists work out of if you rent it by the day or the half day. And I've been on email chains before of if I'm renting an office on a Wednesday and the Thursday person says, hey, I got this new client, but they can only come in on Wednesdays. Do you have a hour available that I can rent from you? It becomes difficult, not only on the other therapist, but it becomes difficult on the client as far as when are you actually available? Are you encroaching on other therapist time and space? Just bad form. Well, and then it can be sometimes that you and a fellow clinician both thought, thought you had the office, depending on how that, the office is run. And all of a sudden, you've got two clients, two clinicians, and one room. <laughs> and that certainly is, I mean, there's confidentiality issues, there's impromptu group therapy. There's, yeah, I guess there's impromptu group therapy, but it can be really hard. And I think it, it can also lead to this kind of, you know, kind of emotion that you have in the background over just being stressed out about trying to figure out, can I actually see a client? When can I use the office? What What's the office going to look like when I get in the room? How is that going to reflect on me and, and my ability to, to hold structure and safety? This can also happen when you are in a room immediately after another clinician, or mm-hmm. you're in there right before somebody else is supposed to be there. You got to leave enough time for both of you to make your transitions, to get set up in the room, to do whatever it is to get it into being your space. But if the person before you is running over time, you got to have that structure around beginning and ending your sessions on time as well. 
Yes. I think it's good for that reason when you are sharing this space, but even for your own practice, if you're consistently ending sessions late and then starting sessions late, it can feel like a not a big thing, right? Oh, we're being flexible, that kind of stuff. But what what ends up happening is that your client then starts showing up late, then they're not getting the full session. And when we say that we're going to start at a certain time and we don't, we're actually impacting how much they can trust us because we're not doing what we said we were going to do. And if we don't finish on time, then then there's the kind of the emotional piece of, are they going to go long for me? I showed up late. Are they going to stay late? I mean, there's all these pieces of when you start adjusting the structure, there's the lack of trust for you as an individual, but there's also this piece of I'm being treated special. And so then there's that impacts the therapeutic dynamic as well, because then there's this not manipulation, but there's this, this testing and kind of assessing how personal this relationship is for you, the therapist. What will you do for me today? What, what rules will you break for me today, Kurt? (laughs) Which ones do you want me to break? You know, there's a a couple of things that happened between getting them to the office, though, that I think that we did skip over. And one is in those practices where it's a a group practice of the person who might be answering the phones or might be doing the marketing might be the one who's made that initial connection with the client and handing over the referral to another clinician within the practice who maybe didn't do the intake phone call or didn't do the marketing. if I'm out marketing my practice and somebody's like, I really want to work with Kurt or Kurt's population and something that doesn't fit out with my schedule or doesn't fit out with my fees that we discussed earlier in this episode. And I'm going to refer them to one of the clinicians who works for me. It's something that the good version of that practice is, I think that you'd work really well with this clinician because X, Y, and Z. Mm-hmm. And to either make a warm handoff through an email connection or having the other clinician reach out and do a, a few minute phone call ahead of the first session just so they're able to connect as well. But I've seen people just say, okay, since you don't fit with my time, I'm just going to schedule you with Katie at 10 o'clock on Thursday. And I think that, you know, I'm amazing. So that would not be a problem for most people. But if you say, I'm going to schedule you with my, intern such and such at this time, and uh, you can get services with them and leave it at that, there can be a diminishing of the other clinician. And I think as an intern or associate who is employed by a group practice owner or who has a supervisor that's doing most of the marketing, you may want to make sure that they're presenting you as as the positive match, as the person that, that is best to serve that client. As you know, or, or at least very good to serve the client. We don't want to lie, but you know, I think there's they're a good match for this client. And then as the the intern associate, you know, pre licensed individual, owning your competence. If you don't own your competence, then your clients won't feel comfortable walking in the door either. And so I think it's something where that exchange is a really important one. I think making sure that if if it's not directly coming to you and you can do the whole piece. But if, if it's you're, you're the person referring out or you're the person that's getting the referral, making sure that referral happens smoothly and very professionally is important for the success of the treatment. And this kind of comes up with my practice too, as far as working with 
teens and kids sometimes is that most of the time it's not the child who's making that initial connection with me. It's the parent, <laughs> it's a, a concerned mother who's worried about little Timmy acting up at school or withdrawing or whatever it might be. And being mindful of making that connection both with the parent on the phone call, helping the parent to help make that connection to you as the clinician before the first session, and then being able to follow through on it in the room. But this also brings up uh, another concern, which is when it comes to appropriate consent paperwork that needs to be signed and done beforehand is it's the 21st century. There's lots of families who are divorced. And a lot of times that's contributing to why a child might need to be in therapy, but making sure that you have appropriate consents from both parents because you don't want to be two, three, four or five sessions in and get a phone call from a parent being like, so I understand you're seeing my child. I never yeah. gave you approval for that. Well, and I think it's something we're making sure that you've crossed all your T's and dotted all your I's with all the consents and, and office policies and that kind of stuff. Because I think with when, you, when you're in a situation like that, where it could theoretically be a you know, a a contested, conflicted divorce, and you've got somebody coming in, there can be big problems if you're seen as taking sides, if you've not gotten consent from both sides. I mean, there's, I think there was recently a uh, disciplinary action around someone that took too strong a side and hadn't really crossed all the T's and dotted all the I's. If we're thinking of the same one, it was also somebody who jumped some boundaries and was making some custodial decisions despite their role as the child's individual therapist. Yeah. But I think covering a lot of those legal things, and you can't just rely on people to read your informed consent paperwork that Mm -mm. I'll admit that I'm guilty of when I show up to a doctor's appointment for the first time and I'm filling out massive amounts of paperwork, not going line by line through things. I don't expect my clients to either. So even being able to describe limits of confidentiality that clients are entitled to know what those limits are. And all of these things do impact the clinical work. If all of a sudden you're like, oh, as this client's describing to me how much they hate their ex-wife and they're talking about some questionably violent things, might be time to talk about Tarasov. You should do that from the beginning. What else as far as bad business practices, Katie? Not only does Therapy Notes combine billing, scheduling, notes, secure messaging, group telehealth, and more into one streamlined platform, they're also always adding new features and forms to their library. So no matter your specialty, Therapy Notes has you covered. Learn more at therapynotes.com and use promo code MODERN for two months free. I think it can really come down to how you take care of your clients separate from what happens in the room. And so it can be the way that you communicate between sessions and and put that into writing, make sure that you've gone over it. Cause I think just having it in your consent doesn't make, doesn't make it actually binding. I don't know if maybe it's legally binding, but if you don't talk about how you respond to text, if you don't talk about what email's for, if you don't really talk about what the expectation of is when when you're available, if those if that conversation hasn't happened and you've not really put it clearly in your consent so they could also refer back to it, then I think that can be something where people feel 
not taken care of. If we think about the way that a lot of people communicate, they're expecting kind of almost instantaneous responses back from text. They really want, you know, no matter what time of day, you know, emails constantly going, they may try to seek you out on social media and connect with you there. I mean, some people don't have a sense of what the therapeutic relationship is. And so if you don't make it your business practice to really explain what's expected, what's what's kind of the agreements between you and how you're going to communicate with them. I think that can be a, a pretty poor business practice that really impacts the clinical. And it's even things like being responsible enough to take good enough notes to remember what happened in previous sessions, to mm-hmm. not need to be reminded by the client of details to a certain degree of what's happening in their life, who they're relating to, and that kind of stuff, that really, when it comes to good business practices, it's treating your patients or your clients, whatever your language is around it, but it's treating them like you care. And it's a lot easier when you do care about them in order to do these things correctly. And I think it's being thoughtful about how you set that up. I mean, in other businesses, you talk about the client experience and customer care. And I think understanding that how you set up your waiting room, what you have out there, if you have coffee available, if you have you know, a comfortable couch to sit on, if your room is set up in a way that is conducive for communication and there's not you know, lots of pounding on the walls and that kind of stuff, I think understanding from your client's perspective, their experience all the way through and and having that be thoughtful and conscientious and really designed to keep them returning until they finish treatment. Like you don't want to hold them hostage (laughs) treatment, but but have them continue to, to sustain treatment, I think is important. Another way that you do that is also in how you talk about them. And I'll let you talk about the deliberate practice, the uh, the Scott Miller stuff, because that's, you know, another business practice that actually supports good clinical work. But I think even within the first session, it's getting buy-in. It's saying, how did you think this went? You know, what are the things that you're taking from this? And really, are we on again for next week? It's it's the business practice of, of re-engagement and making sure that you've You've gotten buy-in at each point and getting customer feedback, which, you know, Scott Miller, your turn. <laughs> um, for for long-time listeners of the show, first of all, thank you for listening to us and keep coming back. And you know our affinity for Scott Miller and reviewing client-informed treatment as far as having them fill out questionnaires about how sessions went and having some objective data rather than just relying on clients being able to talk to you. But there's a couple of episodes that we did a while ago on deliberate practice. We can link to those in our show notes. It really is just about being both responsive to the clients and having a theoretical basis for doing it. That it's it's independent of theory to be a responsive person to your clients. You can set up all sorts of structures business-wise that can either make it very easy to the online scheduling features to even being able to bill clients appropriately. And actually, that brings up a really good issue of the people who forget their checkbook or forget their credit cards mm-hmm. that can rack up three, four, five, ten sessions of debt that can lead into some of the counter-transference feelings that you might have about them. And I think being able to have a backup system to set the limits, whether it's having a credit card on file or if it's having a backup system where you don't schedule a session until they've paid for the previous session, if they you know, 
or, you know, some, some conversation about how you make sure that they get caught up. But I think it can also, that also brought up for me that there's this idea of when people cancel late or no show that, you know, there's some people who've lost clients because they charge immediately, like they'll charge the credit card on file immediately. And it's not necessarily a thoughtful business practice. It goes back to, you know, what's written and not discussed isn't necessarily understood. And so I think, you know, when you're charging a credit card, when you're taking a check, when you're, you know, having a session, that interaction, I think is an important one. And it, it needs to be discussed and be very thoughtful. To summarize all of this, I think that it really boils down to happier clients make for a better, easier practice to have on your end. And you can make a lot of things easier for your clients by having good structures put in place, having whether it's a script that you need to make for yourself from that initial phone call or having an initial questionnaire that you do on the phone that helps you not be so disorganized put the systems in place. It's worth it. And I can say that having been in practice now for, I don't know how many years at this point, eight or so, that it's a lot easier to have these things put in place earlier on than it is to continue to adjust them. And especially as your future will hopefully get busier with all sorts of things that it's worth the time investment. Sometimes it's worth the monetary investment from the very beginning to have these systems put in place. So that way, you're not developing a poor reputation in the client community or with other therapists, that you're making things easier for you, that you're not running into awkward conversation after awkward conversation of things that you forgot and building up to whatever any of these obstacles are that we brought up in today's episode. And I think it's something where it can be hard to know exactly what to do. And I think there's a lot of this actually that we're addressing in our conference in October, Therapy Reimagined 2018. We have people talking about how to set up systems. We have people talk about how, how to optimize those systems for people who are getting ready to join group practice. We have Maureen Warbach talking about that, developing a group practice and having those systems in place to support those uh, those practices. We would love to have you come. We are very excited about this conference. And uh, because you're a listener, we have a special promo code to get you $20 off. It's MTSG. And I think it's it's something where please check it out. And if you even if you can't get to the conference, come join the conversations that we're having over in our Facebook group. It's the Modern Therapist Survival Guide group. Also check out our show notes on our website, mtsgpodcast.com. You can find links back to some of the old episodes that we referred to today, as well as the plethora of resources that Katie will find and cultivate <laughs> for you. Oh, dear. <laughs> <laughs> also check out our website, mtsgpodcast.com. You can find not only some of the references that we talked about today, but also all of our old episodes, including a lot of the speakers from our conference who've been guests on our show previously. And so until next time, I am Kurt Woodhelm with Katie Vernoy. Thank you for listening to the Modern Therapist Survival Guide. Learn more about who we are and what we do at mtsgpodcast.com. You can also join us on Facebook and Twitter. And please don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss any of our episodes. Remember to check out Thryzer. They are passionate about making out-of-network therapy work for everyone. Clients save upfront on therapy while therapists earn their full rate. Get started in minutes on join.thrizer.com forward slash modern therapist and use the promo code modern therapists 
and receive $2,500 in waived fees for your sessions. Thanks so much to our partner, Therapy Notes, the highest rated practice management solution for behavioral health. Don't forget, using promo code MODERN gets you two free months.